This episode is brought to you by Google. Google's two-step verification was built to secure your account and help prevent cyber attacks, even if your password is compromised. That's why Google has made it easy to sign into your account with this additional layer of protection. Just one tap and you're in. Learn more at safety.google. Hi, it's Mark Wasserman. Welcome to the Ska Boom podcast, which is the audio companion to my book, Ska Boom, an American Ska and Reggae Oral History, which is available from DeWolf Publishing and Amazon. The goal of this podcast is to talk about Ska with an emphasis on American Ska history and the bands, musicians, and people who have helped to create and influence a uniquely American version of Ska and Reggae that spans from the late 70s until today. The Ska Boom podcast features a mix of stories on the history of bands, songs, and musicians, interviews with a who's who of ska and reggae, and standalone audio documentaries about a variety of topics. The Ska Boom podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network, which is the MTV of podcasting, featuring a wide range of music shows. The network of 70 shows is hosted by producers, radio DJs, musicians, fans, comedians, actors, authors, and celebrities. In this episode, I'm interviewing Jeff Baker, a.k.a. King Django, and Matt Wixon. Jeff is a New Jersey-based singer, songwriter, arranger, engineer, producer, and multi-instrumentalist, especially in the genres of ska, rocksteady, reggae, dub, dancehall, rhythm and blues, and soul. Other influences in his music have included traditional jazz, swing, klezmer, hardcore punk rock, hip-hop, and electronica. Jeff has toured many times throughout the U.S., Europe, Canada, and Japan as the leader of Stubborn All-Stars, Skinner Box, and the King Django Band, and as a sideman with Rancid, Murphy's Law, The Slackers, and The Toasters. Matt is a singer-songwriter from Michigan who has been playing ska and punk by himself and with others since 2005. These days, though, he's mostly just a fan of ska. It's that fandom that spawned the Hornpub Ska City group on Facebook, as well as Hornpod, a ska podcast that he co-hosts with J.J. Loy. In honor of the 30th anniversary of Stubborn Records, Jeff and Matt have partnered to issue Still Stubborn Volume 1, which features a variety of artists including The Slackers, Big D and the Kids Table, Buford O'Sullivan, and more, performing songs from the vast and diverse Stubborn Records discography. I'll be talking to Jeff and Matt about the comp, and also be digging into the early days of Stubborn Records and the Stubborn All-Stars Band and discussing Jeff's important and long-lasting contribution to American ska and reggae. Jeff Baker and Matt Wixon, welcome to the Ska Boom Podcast. How's it going? Hello. Hello, hello. Okay. Before we do a This Is Your Life for Stubborn Records and Stubborn All-Stars, I want to congratulate you both on the release of Still Stubborn Volume 1. I've really enjoyed listening to it. I'm really impressed with sort of the diversity of the artists on there and the different sounds. 
Can you tell me about the origins of this compilation and how you guys came together and partnered on putting it out? Matt? Okay, I'll, I'll do it. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, I actually pitched this idea just kind of as a fan, really. Uh, I, I pitched it to Django like five, six years ago for the 25th anniversary. Uh, and it was kind of just like, hey, like I love these songs and I know a lot of other people love these songs. And I think it would be cool to like breathe new life into them with like some new artists. And he was like, oh, someone that's- that could do them well. <laughs> Something like that. Uh, the technology wasn't around yet in the '90s to do these songs justice, so that's what I was implying. Or, or the talent. Well, or the talent. Uh, no, so like I was, I just thought it would be cool to do this, and he was like, "Oh yeah, cool idea." And then we never talked about it again for five years. And uh, earlier, oh, almost a year ago now, actually, wait, we decided it was over a year ago, wasn't it? Yeah, because we have the first. Uh, uh, oh, the the email account was set up in March, I think, very beginning of March. Oh, okay. So so we probably started talking a year ago, yeah. Uh, And decided to go ahead with this for the 30th anniversary. And I kind of, I didn't intend to be part of it, but I'm actually excited to be part of it now just because of... The whole thing is it's it's just really flattering. I think it's exciting for me as a fan of these songs and these bands that are participating. Uh, but it's also it's also cool to just like have all of these bands together. Like it's it's kind of a cool community thing, uh, and it's bringing together people from all over the world and from different like genres and everything, all kind of bound together by this love of this music. Yeah, I was I was really struck by that as well. And I know having worked on my own musical projects and stuff, there's a ton of behind the scenes work that goes into putting something like this together. I mean, people see it on Bandcamp and they just think, oh, that's cool. Look at this. But it, tell me how, how much work has it taken to get this first one out? <laughs> hmm. It's a lot of work. Yeah. A I lot mean- of emailing and making spreadsheets and emailing again and then checking people on Facebook and Instagram to find out if they ever saw the email. Like just the, like there's a whole lot of just managing data involved with this just because of how many different variables there are. We have to keep track of who's doing what song so that nobody's doing the same song or the same version of the same song or whatever. Uh, We're like, it's, there's, just, I mean, we're also, Jeff has been doing some of the mixing on these tracks uh, as he's needed to um, or just volunteered to. Like, hey, I think I could do this a little bit better if you don't mind. It's uh, so like, I mean, he's taken on way more work. He's doing the mastering as well. Uh, but yeah, the the organizational part of it has been wild because we we've t- spoken with like, a hundred bands or something more than a hundred bands more because we almost have a hundred tracks already. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> we we got track number seventy delivered about a couple three days ago. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it it sounds a little bit like when I was you know working on my book. Um, I so I I completely empathize with you both because I I felt a lot like a detective most of the time when I was tracking people down and getting people to speak to me like Jeff. 
Uh, it took me a little while to get Jeff to agree to speak to me about. No, um, it was easy, wasn't it? <laughs> it was easy once we got on the phone. Yes. Um, oh, yeah, but I, number. I, I had the told same number from back in the day. <laughs> My point is that I understand that you have to chase people down, and you know, just because somebody says they want to do it doesn't mean that that they have are on top of their shit necessarily and can meet your deadlines and stuff. So yeah, I'm even always when they actually do want to do it. Right. Um, right. So, so I'm always impressed when I see a comp because uh, I, I know how much work has gone into that, uh, the hours and hours of logistics and, you know, details and, the, you know, the devils in the details and these sorts of things. So congratulations, because I think to me, that's half the battle. And then it's the other, the other thing I was interested in is just um, how has the process of selecting the different bands gone or has it been you put the word out and you've been sort of inundated it sounds like maybe with um different artists who wanted to participate um we started with kind of like making a wish list and uh having a lot of laughs doing that (laughs) 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 and uh and you know we just started just building this spreadsheet up and then emailing people right because i have to say i was completely surprised in a good way that the slackers were were doing um the song that they did uh yeah, by rock, that was by a rocker strange, t a strange pick for vic <laughs> when he picked it i was like really i was very excited to see that as well yeah I, I i but that's the beauty of this that's where i think you know the the little weird the little weird qualities about it that make it stand out um <laughs> and and the other one i i really liked buford's uh version of promise jeff and yeah. i'm wondering what you thought of that i liked it I, when he asked to do it i was kind of like ah oh, because i have one <laughs> you know you wanted but to then do i that figured song. i already have it it's recorded but <laughs> but but i was like oh that was my one buford <laughs> but then i was like well you weren't in scanner box so i guess you can do it <laughs> yeah well, that's fair I, I I was just impressed with his version. Like it's yeah, it's really nice. I it's mean, really nice. Yeah. The funny thing is, people ask me which songs I like the best from it, but the truth is that they're all so good. I couldn't pick one. It's like I your could, children, right? Some of them are like more um, surprising than others, but as far as like what I li- I like, they're all so good. You know. There's some that stand out to me just because they're weird and out of left field. You know what I mean? But, but well, I was gonna say like one cool thing that's that's kind of developed. Uh, that I don't even know if you and I have talked about this. Is like, I think the bands are going a little bit outside of their comfort zone for this because we've gotten a lot of songs that sound a little bit unusual for the bands that are like playing on them. Uh, and I think that it's kind of a situation where everybody knows, like they know that you're a ska band covering a ska band and they want to like the band wants to do something new with it. And there's been a lot of something news. And I think that's really cool as well. Some of the bands told me they actually had to learn a fourth chord and stuff. (laughs) (sighs) Those skinheads, man. (laughs) Um, Tell me a little bit about this, the, the plans for, for this moving forward. Cause I think from what I, Understand initially this was just going to be, oh, let's get like 10 or 12 songs together and put yep. this out. But now it's going to be a we series, have 70 right? right now. <laughs> 70. <laughs> yeah, there's more coming. 
Uh-huh. Um, so uh, we just kind of figured out what's going on volume two. Pretty yeah. much about I'm about ninety percent, ninety five percent satisfied with the selection and sequence for volume two. So that's going to come out as soon as I can get that together, and then we'll just move on to number three. <laughs> oh, so there it's just going to be boom, boom, boom. Like you're gonna when it's yeah. ready to go, you're gonna put it out. Okay, cool. Yeah. Pretty much, yeah. I, I gotta don't know catch if we up have like, because <laughs> we have too many. Though. Like we we might have to do these more than once every other month. <laughs> Otherwise, we're going to run out of months to release these. Yeah, we might these. run out of months. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, we might even have to pick up the pace between two and three. I don't know. Wow. And uh, here's one last question related to this. Have you given any thought when it's safe to to do sort of a, a live thing to celebrate the uh, 30th anniversary of, of Stubborn? I had not. <laughs> well, may, may I give you that idea? I had not. Um if I survive all this, uh, all this organization, collection, and mastering, then uh, maybe uh, it's a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> it's really kick, kicking my butt. Like I spend a lot of time on it every week. I don't know, but it, it's. I feel like it's good for you as a as a person just on the outside here. Like I feel like this is good for you to have this to to work on. It, it's cool, but it takes a lot of time. I, I'm well, enjoying yeah. it, no doubt, and like. Like I keep saying, one of the best things is that it's just been giving me an excuse to talk to old friends of mine. Yeah. So yeah. That, that's, and that's really important during this time, I think, is that yeah, definitely. You know, if you don't leave the house much, then you got to have some sort of human contact. So um, that's great. Okay, guys. So, Jeff, before we get started and really dig in here, I got to know something. Is it true? Is it true that back in the day, uh-oh. You chatted over reggae tracks spun by Marvin Young, a.k.a. Young MC of Busta Move fame. Of course. Oops. Do tapes of that exist? I doubt it. We we used to, um, so, so, so Marvin and I were in high school together. So um, that was like when I first started toasting. So probably like the first few times that I ever was on a mic was hanging out with Marvin and he was DJing dances in our high school. And uh, we would just pass the mic back and forth and laugh. <laughs> I just saw him like um, about, I think it was right before COVID because he played at um, the um, Performing performing Arts Center in Rahway. Really? With um, like Rob Bass and... Um, Tone Loke, something like that. <laughs> so they were going, they were going to eighties, eighties old school rap show, huh? Yeah. Yo, Jeff, can we can we get him on this comp? I I don't know, like I don't know. I didn't ask him. <laughs> I never asked him to do anything really because I just I don't know. I don't know. Maybe this is the thing that that gets you back together. Maybe that I starts. Know, I don't know if new. he would do a cover. You know. Well, <laughs> s- send him reason and tell him it's to an interesting, pick a song. Uh, it's an interesting uh, concept. Well, what I didn't know about Marvin was that he's Jamaican. His yeah, par- his parents he was, were Jamaican. His parents were Jamaican. He was born in London and then immigrated to uh, New York, Brooklyn, yeah. when he was about three or four years old. No, so, Bronx. The Bronx, okay. But that explains to me some of his his skills that, that hmm. he grew up listening to reggae music. So um, I thought that was really cool. I had no idea that you guys went to school together and that you sort of got your start. Yeah. Um, we were in school him. from seventh to 12th grade. 
Wow. Amazing. Well, it wasn't like he was my, he wasn't like he was my homie or anything, but, but like we knew each other, we hung out and we chatted over reggae records in dances. You know? Do you remember a reggae record that you chatted over with him or is it too long um, ago? I don't remember. Like, I feel like, I feel like maybe it was like some of the like um, Roots Radix rhythms that Yellow Man used to use. Some of the Junjo Laws stuff. But I mean, that's a long time ago. Yes. And yes. I do remember, you know what's interesting? I remember toasting over um, Prince Buster Rocksteady instrumentals with him. Might have been, I might have been DJing that dance, but I don't remember. Or we, I don't know. I can't remember. I definitely remember chatting over one of those Prince Buster Rocksteady's from the Judge Dredd LP. Wow. Um, were you surprised that he had some level of success and fame? Did you, did, did you feel that he was talented? I remember I was living in Brooklyn at the time. And somebody was just like, yo, you got to watch Arsenio tonight. <laughs> and I was like, God damn, that's Marvin. What the? <laughs> so crazy. Yeah, that yep. was cool. That was very cool. Well, yep. I mean, that was the thing I think about uh, high school in New York for certain people is, that, you know, there was always, always going to be maybe one person who had some level of fame. You know, um, every high school has that one person. So I thought it was kind of cool that you guys went to school together. Um, all right. Let's talk about the origins of Stubborn Records and, and the Stubborn All-Stars, Jeff. Um, you'd been in the Boilers, and yep. that band had its moment in the New York City ska scene in the mid-'80s. What was that experience like for you, being in the Boilers, and what did you learn from it that you took to you know, to Stubborn and, and the All-Stars after that? How do you sum that up? I mean— it was my first band when I when I came back to New York. It was like, it was the first band that I really did. I mean, I was in a band before that. We did a bunch of shows. We we it was up in um it was at school in Massachusetts, um and I was in a little bit of a band before I left New York, when I was still in high school. But that wasn't as serious or whatever. I mean. We just played at the school and we played at CBGB's one time. Um, so like the Boilers was, I guess it was like, that was the band I started playing trombone. Like I didn't play trombone yet when I joined. <laughs> I told this story before, but basically the uh, we were all just hanging around at Blanche's, you know? And, and, um, <clears throat> They came over and they were like, yo, we heard you play trombone. I was like, well, I don't want to say I play it, but I, I have one. <laughs> I'm just kind of <laughs> figuring it out, you know? And they were like, well, you should come hang out, you know, see what's going on. So I started going to rehearsals with them and uh, figuring out how to play trombone. 
during Boilers rehearsals and we didn't have a drummer and Oliver had kind of left the band when I, he had left before I had joined. There was some kind of schism between him and the guitar player. And um, so when I joined, we were missing a drummer and missing a singer. And I guess we didn't have a keyboard player either. I feel like the first couple of rehearsals, I was trying to play the keyboard. And then um, we had we had Michael O'Neill on bass. We had Johnny Patterson on guitar. And, um, and, and the guitar player, the other guitar player, Danny Kwok. And uh, I think that, oh, and Eric Knight on saxophone. That was, that was it. That was the whole band at that time. So um, we were trying people out. And while we were just trying to find singers and drummers and stuff, that's how I was hanging out. <laughs> I had torn the first page out of uh, like a Mel Bay trombone book with the position chart. <laughs> <laughs> and I had it in my pocket. And I'd bring that to rehearsal and I'd put it up on the piano and be like, figure out the thing and then figure out what I want to play, play it on the piano so that I knew the notes. And then I'd look at the chart of the trombone notes and be like, okay, it's over here. It's over. <laughs> wow. And that's how I figured out how to play trombone. That's amazing. <laughs> that's a real story. So, and then eventually, like, you know, I was I was doing that fanzine Rude Awakening for a few years already before that. So, you know, I knew a lot of the ska people in the city and I was hanging out down at Blanche's. So, you know, that's where most of the musicians that were playing this stuff were hanging out. And, um, so I had met Patrick Dower, who's now quite established as a a wonderful artist, graphic visual artist. And, um, I mean, he was always very talented that way, but he's a great drummer as well. And um, I was hanging out. I remember I was hanging out at, at Blanche's and there was this guy called Scrapper. You know Scrapper? Yes. <laughs> and he was like, this guy's the best reggae drummer around. So I was like, yo, you should come hang out. And then Patrick was in the boilers. <laughs> and uh, And then I had put something out in Rude Awakening that the Boilers were looking for members and Vic Axelrod showed up from that and he brought a trumpet player with him. John Broad, right? John Broad, that's right. And then that was pretty much the, I don't know if Eric was gone before that. Well, I can say, I'm old enough to be able to say this, that I saw the Boilers live. One of the best live bands I ever saw at CBGB's. Well, thanks. And um, the the crazy thing was that everybody, for the most part, except for Patrick, was in high school. Yeah. That was the thing that always, always got me. I um, guess I was already out of high school by the time. No, we were out of high school. Or just out of high school. Those, but you, yeah, we were like one year out of high school. But but nobody was over 20 except we, for Patrick. No, we right? were all 18. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, it was crazy. And except the, for Victor, who lied about his age. Right, he was like 14. He was, I think he was like 15, but he told us he was 16. And then like, it was like the next year or two years later, it was his birthday. And I was like wishing him happy birthday. And then he was like, uh, I got to tell you something. <laughs> 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 but 
but it's it's it always struck me that 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 band quite a few of the people who played in that band have gone on to have pretty stellar careers uh in in the arts you know music or in Patrick's case you know he's a he's a visual artist but um it always struck me that it was kind of like a proving ground for you guys and and, and from the ashes of the boilers came Skinner Box right yeah and how would you describe the Skinner Box mission statement when you started the band? Woo, different than it turned out. So kind of when I started Skinner Box, I think what I wanted to do was I was I really wanted to play like kind of like that um sort of that pre-ska boogie kind of Jamaican boogie stuff. I feel like there was I feel like there was three things. I wanted to do that. Jump blues, right? Yeah, I want to do like Jump Blues or like, you know, Jamaican Boogie, which is kind of almost the same. And then um and then um like dub or rubber dub and um probably just straight up ska. But um yes, yeah, so the way that worked out was that when when we did start the band well, we had Vernon Lemon on drums, who was like super hardcore funk drummer. He was mad into funk. And then we had Brant Abner, who was like a crazy jazz prodigy. And um, the bass player was kind of like this rock funk dude, too. And uh, and then we had Steve Abrams on guitar, and he was kind of kind of into the ska, but he was also really into like the mod scene and soul music and that kind of stuff, mod punk rock stuff and soul music. So kind of just let it happen, you know? Yeah. So, so the mission in your mind isn't necessarily what you ended up with the sound based on the musicians. No, in the band. not at all. Right. I would say if anything, Stubborn All-Stars was more of a return to that. Right. Idea. But but, but Skinner it was many years later. So yeah, with Skinner Box though, you had your moment. I mean, I remember early days of my band. I think we opened up a show or two for you guys, and we were like, first of all, we were intimidated. Number one, but, but number two, we were really impressed with your professionalism because I I think you guys rolled up in like a. Did you have like a? Was it like a a like an airport? Van or something? We like, did have that for a minute. <laughs> yeah. I was always, we were always like, what is this? Like you guys rolled up like you were a real band. Like we were Our bass and- player got that from, I think he got it from, from Hilly Crystal. I'm pretty sure he did actually. It was like, it, it belonged to Hilly Crystal, the owner of CBGB's. And um, Steve, our bass player, Steve Carthy. He was an engineer, audio engineer. And I guess he just saw it like in the lot and uh, it was parked. It was in one of those lots. And somehow he found out it was Haley's bus and he, and he offered him some money for it and Haley let us take it. Yeah. It, it, it's really was like one of those vans you hop on at the I airport. I totally forgot about that until you just <laughs> yeah. brought it up. Yeah. I remember we were, we played a show with you in Princeton, New Jersey, and you guys rolled up in that like a real band. And we were like, Oh Okay. Yeah. Uh, what's, what's interesting to me is that Skinner box breaks up because no one wants to play shows outside New York city. Right. Um, kind of just, they just didn't really want to work. Like I was like, okay, like we've been doing this for so long and 
Like, let's do something, you know? Like, I'm trying to do this. And everybody was like, me, me. They were content, I think, with what they were doing. So nobody really wanted to take it anywhere else, you know? So the the band never really, like, officially toured outside of, like, let's we say the We did a little era. bit, yeah. but, like, by the time we were together for, like, 10, 10 years? No, not 10, but, like like eight or nine years before we toured because we were playing in New York, like at least once a week we would leave, we would leave, we would come down to New Brunswick, you know, we would go local, you know what I mean? But like an hour away, maybe up to like Ithaca and back or something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. We just do like one nighters, two nighters. And, um, and then it took us till 90, I think the end of 95, so we were together for like seven years before we ever went on the road. Yeah, I, I can understand that. If you're in New York and you have a regular gig once a week. We were playing know, like at least once a week. Sometimes yeah. we played three and four nights a week in different parts of the city. It was very weird. What was happening in 95 that made you decide it was time to hit the road? Um, I think I just had more experience by then because I had done um, two and a half years with Murphy's Law. And touring with them all the time. And um, so I was like, all right, well, are we doing this or are we just jerking around, you know? Yeah. So what inspired you to start Stubborn Records in 1992? Um, I had always been putting stuff out since um, since I linked up with Oliver in the Boilers. We, we were putting our own stuff out, but we were just doing cassettes and then we kind of started doing like weird compilation projects and all this other stuff on cassettes and um, Skinner box cassette. And um, we, we thought we were going to get signed because there was like these people that were telling us they're going to manage us and this and that. So we were hanging out waiting for them to hook up all this stuff that they were promising us. And then they just kind of weren't doing anything. And I just said, well, we need to get something out. Screw this. So I just said, let's just do it. Right. And that so, was that. So the the first release on Stubborn Records, the official first release was Skinner Box's <sighs> Tales of the Red, right? On CD and cassette. I don't, I'm not sure. Is that, I feel like we might've done 45s before that. Mm. Like, I think the Does He Love You? I feel like um, the insteps, I'm the king with the heat, is the first stubborn release, and then Skinner Box, Does He Love You, forty five. So, what was it like running a label, and how, how did you learn about the business side of of running a label? Was it like hit or miss, like learning on the job kind of thing? Um, a lot of it is that for sure. Um, Bucket was always very helpful and forthcoming with information. He was definitely like a good mentor. He he wasn't um he was not stingy with the knowledge, you know. I'm laughing because he always used to say, Don't be stingy. <laughs> but um <laughs> yeah, he was very, very helpful. He would always say, Ah, oh, you go to this guy and you talk to this guy and you go to this place for this and go to that place for that. And this is what you got to do. Right. And, uh, and, and how did you get distribution in those pre-internet 
website days. You know, there was no band camp then. Yeah, being in the city was kind of like, we didn't really even think about it because we were just, in those days, man, it was like we make the record and we just freaking sell them in New York and they'd be gone. So we take them, we take them around town. We bring them to, uh, we used to go to Tower and consign them at Tower and go to, um, go to Bleaker Bob's and consign them at Bleaker Bob's and go, just, there was like 10, 12 record stores you could just bring them to and then sell them at shows and boom, you're done, you know? I mean, there was mail order, you know, cause we had like, uh, we, you know, there was a fanzine network in those days. And you just put a little ad in fanzines and then people would send you letters with checks in them <laughs> <laughs> and you'd send them out, you know? Yeah. I actually wanted to ask you about that. I was sort of curious, how, how were album sales in, in the mid nineties for you? I mean, way better than now. Right. And, and could you make a living and support yourself off of playing music and selling records? Um, yeah. I mean, I did for a long time when I was downtown. But it was like, you know, it was constant. It was every day. You know what I mean? It was like I was doing Murphy's Law. I was doing Stubborn All-Stars. I was doing Skinner Box. I was doing Stubborn Records. So it was like a constant grind. You know what I mean? But I was paying the bills. Uh, I had an apartment down there, downtown in Lower East Side. Um, you know, but it was like a straight, constant hustle. Sure. But that's when the Lower East Side could actually support artists, though. Yeah. Right? I mean... Yeah, things kind of got crazy. Like, I mean, I moved out because it was too much already. Too much meaning the rent? Yeah, it was like I had a I had a really sweet deal, and then you know people have deals like that, and then you know eventually they go they go away. So I I had a really cool sublet, and then I lost that because of fam you know the family that owned it needed it, and um, trying to get something equivalent at that time was like you know, more than paying a mortgage out here. And I live in, you know, living in Manhattan in a shoebox, basically. So I was like, well, let me see what I could do, you know? Sure. Um, explain the connection between Version City Studio and, and Stubborn Records. And again, for anyone who wasn't part of the scene back then, describe the Version City Studio, which was in East Village. I was there a few times but I don't want to describe it. I want to hear you describe it first. So that was basically um, one day our bass player, we used to rehearse at this place called Giant Studios. Everybody used to rehearse there. That's where a lot of people met each other. You know, Skadanks, we met Skadanks there, and like ton, tons of other bands. Everybody used to rehearse there. And um, that kind of started going downhill. And um, at that time... I guess the bass player that we had lived down in Lower East Side. Same one that found, he's very industrious. Same one that found the bus. <laughs> he finds this um, spot where, I don't even know how he, how he found it or how he know the landlord or whatever, but it was on East 3rd Street and there was a record store where it used to be a bodega. And the basement was the seller, you know, the seller was the seller of the bodega that was not rented with the record store. So it was just this available seller. And he approached the landlord and was like, oh, and it was like when the bodega left, they just left it full of 
garbage and whatever. So he approached the landlord and was like, hey, if, if you give us a few months free rent, we'll clean that out for you. And then he gave us a monthly, a month-to-month lease on that little space down there. So it was pretty sketchy. Uh, when we when we first got it, it was full of dead rats, layer of cockroaches, garbage, everything, and we had to clean all that out. And uh, and then we had a space. Um, there was a there was like a sewer uh backup like a what do you call it like a what do they call it like like a sewer clean out in the front that wasn't plugged so sometimes water would come up through there from people's like washing machines and stuff (laughs) and uh and we had the back room behind there that was out in the front room that was like the fountain you know (laughs) we entertain guests at the fountain And, uh, you know, and then the back was kind of just like a cozy little cellar that we kind of decked out with like junked rugs and stuff like that. And uh, at first it was just our Skinner Box rehearsal space for a long time. And uh, over time, you know, we started messing around with home recording type of stuff. Uh, I think the first thing was that L had a eight track cassette player. So we started doing stuff with that. I guess that was like around the time that we started the label. We started trying to make recordings on that thing, which we actually did make quite a few. A lot of the like Roots, Branched Stem stuff, like the early compilation stuff was done on that thing. We even did a bunch of Skinner Box stuff on there, early versions. And then, um, and then eventually by like 96, 95, 96, I started really buying some gear. And that's when it kind of, I was going to call it something else, but then Agent J is the one that named it Virgin City. And uh, what were you going to call it? Oh, I think it was like Channel Two. <laughs> <laughs> and then Tubi took that now as Channel Tubes. Well, I was there once or twice and my. Everlasting memory of being in there was the sound of rats in the walls. Really? That, that was freaky. Yeah. Oh, I thought we killed them all by then. I was there once. I don't remember why, but I remember hearing like this scratching sound and saying to somebody, what's that? And they're like, oh, there's sometimes rats in the walls. It was probably one of the radiation kings scratching at their, <laughs> um, what do you call it? Scratching at their crabs. But- <laughs> So, so what I want to understand though, because I think this like makes a nice link to your to your still standing comp, is a lot of the songs that are being covered on this comp and future comps were recorded in that space. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, I would say that is true. Yeah, because there's a sound. There's a sound. That studio had a sound. The uh, the funniest thing is like, yeah, I mean, it was just like it was a mess. <laughs> It, it was, it had, a, it had a, uh, a shaggy charm, shall we say, but it was definitely, <laughs> it was definitely a creative space. You know, the, the, the few times I was there, you knew that that's where music was being made. Like, and I, I could see that you could get, you could go there anytime you wanted. Right. I mean, that must've been the beauty of the, having that space. If inspiration was striking, you could go down there and, and work on something. Yep. Um, a few people had keys. 
once it was all set up to record. So, I mean, before that, even there was like, we, we like slackers used to rehearse there eventually. And then agent 99 used to rehearse there until their bass player had a drug problem and stole people's instruments. Um, you know, and then eventually a few people had keys to, 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 to use the recording studio. Right. And to get and, in, um, you actually had to, as you described it as a seller, if for people who aren't in New York city, oh, yeah. you know, um, it, it, you know, it was a flat, um, metal on the street that you had to open up. Right. And then you could go down these really rickety stairs into the cellar. So um, the stairs were concrete. Oh, concrete. Okay. Um, but, but the only way in, there wasn't, there, there was no door in though. You had to open no, you up. You just those, go down, right. down into the. If you look at the front cover of the back with the new batch album, that is the entrance to. Virgin right, City. like if you didn't know it was there, you would have walked oh, right past City. it. Right, you would have walked over it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you would have walked over it. Um, so, so let's talk about stubborn all stars. Um, from what I gather, and I hopefully I have this right, um, you know, the band was an offshoot of the label, and you released the seven inch four song EP called old school is yep. that that's how this went down. Right. And then you get approached by profile records who had signed yep. run run DMC. Is that right? Yep. And how, how'd that all go down and what happened there? Um, so, I mean, I started the band because, you know, because like we were talking about before, Skinner box kind of went in this crazy experimental fusion direction, which was great. I mean, I, that kind of started me like really learning about music more because, you know, I just, I, I didn't go to music school or anything like that. I just, like I said, I tore a sheet out of a Mel Bay book to learn a trombone, you know, <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing at all. And then when I got in Skinner box, it was like Brent Abner, you know, especially, but you know, Danny Doolin was in music school at a, uh, what do you call it? music, music and art. Is that what it was? Uh, LaGuardia, yeah. LaGuardia. Yep. And, um, you know, so, you know, it was like, oh, and, and we had, you know, over the course of that band, we had some really serious musicians in there. So I just learned to be quiet and absorb, you know, and just like kind of let stuff happen. But at a certain point, I was like, you know, I want to do this stuff that is what really inspired me to play music in the first place. So now armed with, you know, a little bit of knowledge. I was like, let me pick some guys out that I think would sound good doing this and actually want to do this and not want to play fusion funk um, while I'm trying to play Jamaican Sky. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with funk and fusion. Just I wanted to, I wanted to kind of go back to what I started, started trying to do. And um, what was the other part? Oh, <laughs> So yeah, so the whole intent was just to make that EP. And uh we did that at my friend's studio, which was um what's it called? Diving board. But my friend Jay Wasco, who was affectionately known as Jay Wacko to everybody, and he had recorded everyone because he used to have a little like eight-track recording rig up at um Giant Studios, the rehearsal studio, and he would do like Guerrilla recording before it was really fashionable, you know? And uh, a lot of people learned a lot of stuff off of him. <laughs> and so um, we made our, our EP, put it out on Stubborn. And then a couple weeks later, I guess, you know, Fred Feldman, 
who worked at Profile and had his own little sub-label there, which was um, Another Planet, which was the rock label of Profile Records. He uh, picked it up at Bleaker Bob's. And, you know, two weeks later, we were negotiating a, a record deal. What what were the terms of that deal? Did you did you actually see any they gave money? Me a million dollars. Yeah. Wow. To- <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> we had a. Uh, I think we had like a a two or three uh, one one album with two options. But um, what happened was by the time we made the second album, the owner of the company had decided to retire. So profile just shut down in between the two first Southern All-Stars albums between uh, Open Season and Back With A New Batch. Damn. So Back With A New Batch came out on Triple Crown, which was Fred's new independent label that he started after Profile went out of business. But but did signing that deal, did you see any money? I guess is my question. Oh, uh, we spent it on the recording studio, you know? Okay. Like, Everybody got paid a few hundred bucks each to do the record. You know what I mean? Like people got people got paid. Most of us, it was our first time we ever got paid to make a record. But everyone got paid, you know, X amount. And then the rest of the money went to the recording studio and um, mastering and, you know what I mean? And then we never got any royalty checks. That's real. I'm sure it is. Because Profile... Went out of business after that. Right. Um, they did send us on tour in Europe. That We spent a lot of their money doing that. We went over there opening for Rancid for a month. And and who was in the band? Can you can you go over if you can remember? Um, it wasn't the same on any two records. So the first EP was um, Eddie Ocampo on drums, Victor Rice on bass, Victor Ruggiero was on guitar. Um, this friend of mine called Taggio Castillo, who's actually doing a track for the compilation, was the keyboard player. And then uh, we had L on saxophone, Jason Glazer on trumpet, um, Dave Nelson from the Insteps on trombone. And I think... I think that was it plus me on the on the EP. And then um and then when we went to make the album, we took those tracks from the EP and and remixed them. I don't know if we changed anything on them, but um by that time then it was like different lineup cuz I think Tajio left what was it was still Eddie Victor Rice, Agent J on guitar, Vic Ruggiero on keyboards now. And then that's when I decided that I needed to have like a saxophone section and a brass section. (laughs) So we we did that. Well, one name on the list of musicians who've who've played with you in Stubborn All-Stars, which I thought was really interesting and I didn't know this, was Noah Shackman who is currently the editor-in-chief no, of Rolling he's Stone. he's not on any Stubborn All-Stars record. 
Oh, what did he play on? He's on um, Reason. Okay, so King King Django. Yeah. Okay. Um. And I feel like that's the only album that he's on of mine. He did a Stubborn All Stars tour in Europe. See so a good bass player. Noah. Yeah, Noah's yeah Noah's a really good bass player. Um, he um he had his own band called No Shadow Kick, which was like kind of like this dub dub. It's kind of like he he plays like he knows how to play reggae. He plays reggae, but he plays it kind of like with a little rock in it, you know. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Noah's a real good bass player. I mean, we did we did a lot of stuff, um, you know, around that time of Reason. Yeah, I, I just think it's it's so funny that every time I I read about him, the description of him as you know the editor in chief of Rolling I've Stone. I've known Noah since the Boilers. Wow, that that he he gets it, it always mentions that he was a ska he, bass player. He had another funny. band. He had a band when he was a kid. I'm trying to remember what it was. Wow. But he he had like some ska band, and he was he's like younger than I am. I remember he had some ska band when I was doing the Boilers. Because I remember talking to him and hanging out with him when I was still doing the Boilers. Oh. So I've known him since then. Wow. Yeah. It's so so crazy that he's the editor-in-chief of Rolling Stone now. But yeah, man. That's crazy. Well, he's been working hard for a long time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, you released Open Season in September 1995, and it features... Roland Alfonso. That's the album, right? Yeah, of the Scottalites yeah. and Chris Dowd of Fishbone. Yeah. How? Any stories you can share about working with either of them? Like, how did you get them involved? <laughs> so Roland was, you know, that was a time when the Scottalites were just like around again, and they were playing. They were playing all over all the time. They were very busy at that time. So we had met them, gone to see them. You know, um, I don't know if we'd ever played gigs with them yet, but there's this guy called Herbie Miller, who's now like the director of the um, Jamaica, was it the Jamaican Music Institute, I think, or it's a, it's a museum in Kingston for Jamaican music. And, uh, and he's the director there and, and he had the contact for Roland Alfonso. Somebody connected me to Herbie and said, yeah, yeah, we'll get rolling. And just Roland shows up in the studio, you know? That was pretty cool. His daughter brought him up there. He was real cool. And then I, I didn't really get to hang out with him until after that, you know? Like I got to know him more because he recognized me from that. And we played a lot of shows with them after that. Or we'd just go see them play. So... But but in the no. studio, Jeff, do you give yeah. Roland Alfonso direction or you just let him do his you thing? You didn't have to. <laughs> he just go, um, let's see, what did he do? He did those two songs. He did the Lieutenant and he did the Roland Meets Richie.
You know, I feel like he just said, oh, just, just play the song for a minute. And he listened to it for like a minute. And then he goes, okay. Okay, record it. <laughs> and he just didn't even it, didn't know? even ask you the key. Just just knew. No. What he was. Yeah, he didn't have to ask me anything. Wow. <laughs> what are you gonna tell him? I mean, he's Roland Alfonso. Right. <laughs> he just said, "Oh, I think I think the second one he was like, just said just record, and he just played over it the first time he heard it. I think that was the lieutenant one. He just played over it right away." Like, I think it was the first time he heard it as he was playing. <laughs> and, and, sure. and Chris Dowd, how, how did you get connected you know, to him? I can't remember how I became friends with Chris. That's what's weird. He he was living in New York for a minute. Um, I believe he was living in New York with Jeff Buckley. Yes. At the time. And I met him somehow during that period. I don't freaking remember how I met him. Um, which makes sense if you know him and if you know how I was back then. So <laughs> I have no idea how we met. We just started hanging out and and um that basically that's how that happened. And he played piano, he played keyboards? keyboard, he played organ on a couple of tunes. Um I can't remember for life of me which tunes off the top of my head. It's a long time ago and a blurry time. I understand. Um, when when you when you listen to Open Season now, I don't. But but, but if what what's your takeaway from it now? Are you are you happy? I would have to get back to you on that. I'd have, I'd have to go listen to it. Um, I want to answer I, for you. You're gonna don't you're not gonna be happy. I guarantee you're gonna, <laughs> not that it's a bad record, but you're going to go back and be like, this sounds like shit. And you're going to be bad about it. Picking nits. Yeah. yeah. It's all you do um, is pick nits, bro. Well, no, you that's know, not the last, you, you pick a lot of other things. The last time I, <laughs> I uh, listened to part of it was to do the remixes for the, for the new pressing of the open season 45. And, um, I didn't have a problem with it. I was happy with it. All right. I had some laughs working on it. <laughs> I had a fun time mixing it and yeah, it was it was good. Good experience. I was bummed out that I had to remix it because I thought I was gonna get to use my stampers again, but alas. In nineteen ninety six, you, Vic Ruggiero, and Dave Hilliard get invited to join Rancid. For Lollapalooza, which included Soundgarden, Devo, the Ramones, and Metallica. And the Shaolin Monks of China. Do not forget them. They were the best thing on it. What was that tour like? It was bizarre. <laughs> also, L did half of that. Um, basically, that was after we had already gone to Europe supporting Rancid. And then when we came back, Tim had given me a call and asked me if I would go with them on Lollapalooza. And I was like, hell yeah. And then about a week or two weeks later, he asked me if it was okay to ask Vic and Dave and L. And I was like, yeah, hell yeah, let's go. And uh, so L couldn't do all of it because of his job or something. But um, it was crazy, man. I mean, it was crazy. It, it to be fair, it got boring, <laughs> but 
But as far as like the, cause like, you know, most time it's just like, it wasn't every day. So it'd be like driving and then chilling out and riding in the bus and chilling out and then play a show. But the cool things about it was like watching the bands that were playing and watching, watching the Ramones, watching the Shaolin Monks of China was real cool. And then just like, you know, meeting everybody or weird, weird little things that would happen. You know what I mean? Anything, um, anything stick out? Any of those weird little things? As far as like playing, we would only play like a few songs a day because most of Rancid set we weren't in. You know, we were just like, okay, now the horns comes out. Yay. We play like two, three songs and we disappear. Yeah. So it was like hanging around a lot to do a little. But, you know, the funny things, like one of the funniest things was right at the beginning. I remember the first day we're like backstage and we're looking around and trying to find some beers and there's no beers to be had. <laughs> and uh, we're like, oh, looking around from everybody, looking at our trailer, looking at everyone's trailer. There's no beers anywhere in the entire backstage. And uh, we went to... Uh, we went to one of the, um, you know, stage managers or the backstage managers, whatever, hospitality. And we were like, hey, <laughs> I'm, I'm automatically doing my Vic voice. But but we were like, hey, is there any way we could like get some beers in our trailer? And they were like, oh, my God, you guys don't know. Oh, my God. It's like everybody on this tour is in AA. <laughs> There's no beer anywhere back here they were like we would get you some if there was any but there isn't any and we were like (laughs) (laughs) so after the first day we would get we would get a few beers but that was it we were the only ones that had beer and um we would just like sneak into the ramones trailer and steal their iced coffees (laughs) (laughs) do you think those shows Move the needle on starting to popularize ska. Uh, Lollapalooza, yeah. Not, and now I'm I not talking about people who were into <laughs> ska, but I'm talking about the broader, vast audience. I, I, I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you. I have no idea, really. Um, and and also, like, it always depends what you mean by ska. So no, I I know that <laughs> I I know that 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 Rance is not playing ska, but I think. I know you know that. I yeah, but but for the vast majority of people who don't know that, did the response from the crowd suggest to you that people were taken with what they were hearing? To tell you the truth, man, like that so those shows, I mean, we played at like the Gorge in Washington where it was like I think they said it was like 50 or 60,000 people there. Good so God. you don't know what's happening. It's it's like it's just a sea of people and you you don't have time to resolve it. You know what I mean? It's just like you don't know what's going on. And we were early, we were on early in the day most of the time. We were like like third act. I don't know if we were ever second, but but yeah, we were like kind of in the early part of the day most of the time and then the rest of the time we were just wandering around, bumping into rock stars. <laughs> I think Waylon Jennings was on that. 
was it Waylon Jennings? Or was it? <laughs> and we met so many people. It was crazy because Devo did a bunch of them and uh, oh, Violent Femmes did some of them. And that, it was more like, yeah, it was, it was crazy, man. Riding in the, riding in the uh, shuttle van with, um, what's his name? Freaking, um, that singer from Metallica. Oh, James Hetfield? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you get in the shuttle bus and James Hetfield's there, you know, like, yeah, hey, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of surreal, you know? I would think so. And then, and then you're just like the, the, you're like the, the bulldog on the hood of the Mack truck, you know what I mean? <laughs> And the best part is Jeff's kept in contact with all of them and they're all going to be on this compilation. Not even true. <laughs> the ones that I talked to, most of the time I made them cry. All right. Yeah, you're right. We'll never get violent femmes. I didn't make them cry. I did. I, I, I think they were a little upset because I was like, the first time I met them, I was like, oh my God, you got, you guys, you're, oh my God, you're violent femmes. Oh my God. I used to listen to you all the time when I was a kid. And they were just like, wow. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> sad. But then, they, but then the next day they invited Dave and I to sit in with them. So that was pretty cool. You played with Violent Femmes? Yeah. Dave, Dave Hilliard and I sat in with Violent Femmes. What the fuck? I didn't that know that. Awesome. <laughs> Do you remember what song? No, I don't remember anything, man. <laughs> <laughs> That's it's a really so, good policy, it just, honestly. It was just so crazy. It was like wasn't even doing drugs or anything, like barely drinking. You know, I just just the insanity of it, you know? Yeah. Um you released back with a new batch in 1997. So you had quite a couple of years there, 95, 96, 97, which which we can say you might dispute it, Jeff. This comes out at the height of the ska boom, right? Um, the video for Pick Yourself Up goes into rotation on MTV. And Alternative Press calls back with a new batch, quote, the best reggae album of 1997. CMG New Music Monthly says it was the Didn't best. did they say it was like the best reggae album of 1970 No, CMG New Music oh. Monthly said it was the best reggae album of 1971. Oh, okay. So first- mm. Which of those best? Which of those descriptions meant more to you, and why? Best reggae album of '97 or best reggae album of '71? It really said that best reggae album of '97. Yes. <laughs> oh, uh, I mean, I don't, I, I don't think I was really affected by that stuff. To tell the truth. Well, I love the description of the best um, reggae album of 1971. I mean, what does that mean to you now? What do you think they were trying to say there? That we were doing like real old school reggae, I guess? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, but, I understand that that's meant as a compliment, but that's also absurd. Like 1971 was pretty lit for reggae. So. Yeah, Toots killing it. Yeah. The Upsetters were at their prime. Yeah, killing it. Come on. That was before Bob Marley turned it into rock music. Yeah. Well, I mean, Chris Blackwell. Chris Blackwell with a bunch music, of- Using right, Bob Marley. Right, right, right. Um, Jeff, what was it like having a video on MTV when it mattered? Or did you, did it not have any impact it on- It didn't really have any impact on me. <laughs> I think my, my parents were like, oh, finally he did something. 
But other than that, <laughs> I mean, did, did did you notice an increase in sales or live bookings after no, you? No, because on MTV? that was all through um, the record label, through whatever, through Triple Crown, I guess at that point. And um, I don't remember what we were doing as far as touring at that time. Well, was that the Ska Mob tour? Was that around then? Uh, I feel like, to tell you the truth, I, I can't remember. No, I, I think, I think Ska Mob was before all that. Like before Lollapalooza and everything. Oh, really? Okay. I, I, I got so. my timing wrong because Lollapalooza was, so. was 96. So I thought, uh, yeah. I thought the Ska Mob tour was from 97. I, think I just found something online talking about Ska Mob, Skinner Box, Slackers, Stubborn All-Stars from 97. Okay. Like fall so was of 97. Oh, okay. So you were you were touring. Uh, I think that was the tour where I lost my voice on like day five or six and it never came uh, back shit. for the rest of the tour. <laughs> that's how I was my first tour. It wasn't my first tour. It was well, just like, that's your fault then. In fact, <laughs> that's how like, I was my by, first tour. By, no, because I was like, oh, yeah, this always happens. Day seven, I'll lose my voice and it'll come back and I'll be fine after that. Yeah. And then it just never came back. Yo, check this out though. Like when I was, I, you know, my first tour, it was just me playing guitar by myself. Uh, I blew my voice out like oh, almost a week, like five, six days in. Uh, to the point where, like, I was playing all of my songs in a different key so I could sing them lower <laughs> with a fucked voice. Isn't that wild? I just was singing like Dickie Barrett, and I figured everyone thought it was normal for a ska. I went for lessons after that tour to not lose my voice anymore. That why you sing so purdy? So purdy. So, so that ska mob tour, though, Jeff, I want to ask this question again. Did Did you... Did it have any effect on popularizing ska in America? I couldn't point? tell you any of that because I don't know. It's like you, you, you know, you, you, you can't ask the lab mouse the clinical results. You know what I mean? <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> well, then, then let's talk about the open season thing. And again, I'm assuming there's people listening to this who aren't familiar with this. Um, but the story here is that that was a song that was originally recorded for the old school EP. So way back in 1992. Yep. In 1997, five years later, which is always interesting to me, Hepcat issues a response titled Open Season is Closed. I feel like the EP was actually done like, it came out I think in 94. So we might've recorded it towards that 90, end of 93 or something. Okay. It wasn't the, you know, it wasn't at the beginning of the label. But it, it took Hepcat a little while to respond, though. Um, I guess, yeah, because that came out in 90, 94? 97, I think. No, the open season. Oh, open season. Yes, yes. The EP was 94, right? I have it as 92, but you would Oh, know. no, I don't think it's that early. No, I think it's more like 94. And then what, open season L, uh, LP is 95? Yeah, that makes sense, right? Okay. Um, but- but the, what's interesting is you, in old school Jamaican style, you quickly write and record that response, Hepcat season. Oh. And you had seven inch copies ready when Hepcat pulled into New York for a show. Yeah, and it was real close too. It was, it was crazy. Like, you know, basically we knew what day the album was coming out. And also, so I remember 
that Alex and um, Greg were in New York. We were hanging out with them in the Lower East Side. Pretty sure we were hanging out on Avenue Avenue A. And they told us that they had done it. Um, They told us they had made an answer. And so that's how we knew. Proclamation of the Steady Rock Easy Groove Council. At Cat presiding. Open season is officially declared closed. Yes, 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 yes. On behalf of the Steady Rock Easy Groove Council, Mr. Luke will speak. Bring it on, you. All steady rock scare DJ Don wanna be afraid to go. Live not in fear of the braggadocio dingo from the east coast who likes to pop up and does as if he is the most. For if he comes to my town, he'll burn like toast. On his own dry words, he chokes as a stuff up in the throat. He must remember the open season. And I remember Dave Hahn and I were, were we knew when the record was coming out. So we were hanging out, and the day that it came out, we went to Tower Records to get it. We brought it back to the studio, and the same day, we had mixed, mastered, and sent that thing out to get cut. Here, pussy, 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 pussy. much like that night or the next morning it was in you know fedex that is some to, real jamaican press so that's gangster except we yeah. wouldn't use fedex in jamaica you just jump on the bicycle yeah <laughs> so so i don't not going to get into all the details about you know when you sort of showed up at their show or anything like that because i know you're all friends and it's all good but yeah talk about that now with 25 years of distance like is that are you, are you, do you, do you still find that fun or amusing that you did that? Like, would you do something like that now? Just, it was funny, man. I mean, you know, we used to do that, um, DJ shit all the time. So we, any excuse to get on the microphone and, and, and be silly and have a good time. You know what I mean? We used to do it at, most of the time at Scott shows, like in wetlands or anywhere else. In between the sets or at the end of the night, 
if if one of us was DJing, bam, the microphone would come out eventually. Um, if Scott Danks was playing, people would get up and chat with them. If Skinnerbox was playing and we didn't have a short set, we were playing one of those long nights, we would have everybody come up that knew, you know what I mean? Everybody would come up and toast. Continental, Nightingale Bar, Wetlands. You always have people come up and toast. So that that was like, you know, that was what we did, you know? I don't know. I as a as a listener, as a fan, even like I wasn't even like aware this was going on at the time, but just knowing that there's like this legendary interaction, like there's like this story, you know, this event. Uh, like there, there was this actual show and actual history where this showdown happened or whatever, you know, like, I think that's very exciting to have in the, the America's contribution to the story of ska. There was a lot of pacing and fretting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's got, you had, you had Spielkus, I'm sure. And that's for those of you who don't understand. No, Yiddish. not me. I didn't. You didn't have any Spielkus? Spielkus is hard. Hell no. I had, yeah. what I had was chutzpah. Chutzpah. Yes, mm. you did. To do what you I did. Was, pull I was, I was ready, off. bro. I was like, I, we went there and I was like, yo, you're going to battle me on stage tonight, right? That's literally what happened. It was at Tramps. No, because my man was pacing back and forth. Rocker T was with me. He will tell you the same story. <laughs> and... We went down there. I bought Alex a test pressing. I said, to Alex, it's a love thing. <laughs> and and um, and um, I was like, so you, what's up? You're going to battle me on stage tonight, right? Oh, he's pacing back and forth. Oh, wait, what, what, what? What's up, man? You're going to battle me on stage, right? Tonight, right? Oh, man, no. Why not, bro? Oh, I can't do that. Why? What do you mean you can't? I don't know how, okay? <laughs> oh, you don't know how, huh? <laughs> well, that's why you shouldn't have done said that shit then. <laughs> and that's basically how it went down, bro. Yeah, I, I've always liked it because to me it was a little, a little bit like East Coast, West Coast rap. But it was, uh-huh. you know, East Coast, but West Coast. But the funny Coast, thing uh, is that I know Alex from New York. Right. right. I know him from, he went to LaGuardia with Danny Doolin. I remember Alex hanging out in the parties, the dances that we used to throw back in the day, even when we were still in the boilers. We used to throw big parties at Giant Studio, sound system parties, where we would play records and toast. And Alex used to hang out at those parties when he's like 14, 15 years old. I, I still like, I agree with Matt. I think it's still a great story about uh, what I would call the kind of the golden age, you know, of, of American fun style. times, fun times. Yes. Speaking and of now fun, I'm having my golden anniversary. Yes. Of the stubborn all-stars first album. It's 50 years ago. <laughs> <clears throat> Your golden Jubilee. Hey, Hey, what did you call me? <laughs> uh, oh shit. <laughs> so Jeff, you, you, you worked with Rancid uh, on the song. I want to riot. That was on the Beavis yeah. and Butthead do America yeah. soundtrack. Did you see the movie? I have seen parts of it. Thoughts? Thoughts? I mean, Beavis and Butthead are funny as hell. (laughs) I I don't really have any thoughts about it. I always thought it was interesting where they inserted the song in the movie. It's kind of a cool, a cool 
part of the movie. Like, it's it's, the aren't they tripping? The bus, right? Are they tripping up when they play that song? I can't remember. I can't remember either, bro. But the bigger question I'm interested in, I've never asked you this, Jeff. Is it true that the royalties you earn from that help you with the down payment on your house in New Jersey? No, no, that's absolutely false. Um, that's, that's confusion. He paid cash for his house with the money he made from that song. No, Tim was very generous uh, with the horn section and cut us all nice checks. And what I did buy with that check was the mixing board and possibly, I think, the mixing board and the 8-track recorder that started Version City. Wow. Nothing nothing quite so extravagant okay. as a house. Uh, uh, it wasn't that much money. <laughs> okay. Well, you know. I, a I, few thousand bucks, you know. Yeah, okay. That's cool. I, I but mean, he was very generous. He did not have to give us that. Sure. Um. I don't know why a couple of us thought that 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 somehow you'd made enough money from that to buy your house. No, no, no. I don't get any royalties from that. Okay. It's just performance, right? Yeah, he just gave us money when we did it and that was that. Okay. But it was a very generous payment as I say. Sure. Um I want to circle back to the 90s ska boom, Jeff, cuz you you've said some interesting things about it. Um, you told Ken Partridge in his book, Hell of a Hat, that just came out last summer, that you don't pine for the 90s because Ska's popularity had little effect on sales of records on on Stubborn. Um, You said, and I'm going to read this quote, it's a bit of a long quote, so bear with me. I don't think that what we were doing was part of that. It just confuses people about what Ska means. Two people can say they love Ska and hate each other's music. One of them is right, the other is misinformed. When you say ska, most people are really turned off to that. They think it's a bunch of children dressed in checkerboards and bright colors playing shitty child's music. That's not ever what it was for us. It made it harder to be taken seriously. Um, I thought that was a pretty pretty profound probably, statement. It's close, it's close to verbatim, I would say. <laughs> okay. C- care to reflect on that? I mean, yeah, it's true. That's that's how we felt at the time. And and I think it's just true. I, I, I don't disagree. It's not the same music. And I, I still am puzzled by why, you know, it's got the same name and, and the purveyors of that small S ska, like, are really, like, kind of insistent and almost like, I don't know. They can be, like, they can be kind of like, I don't know what the right word is, but. I mean, I give the example of like you order a hamburger and someone brings you like a bratwurst and tells you that's a hamburger. That would be like arrogant of them to be like, no, I'll tell you what a hamburger is. You know, so (laughs) it's like, oh, it evolved. No, it didn't evolve. That's not a freaking hamburger. I mean, that's (laughs) basically like that, you know. So what can I say? Yeah, I mean, the other book that came out you know, was this guy, Aaron Carnes, who, who I uh-huh. give credit for coming up with a very clever sort of way of, of, uh, you know, this idea of, of defending ska. Do, do, do you feel that ska needs defending? I never made it my, uh, you know, 
I don't know. Like, it's not something that occurred to me. Let's put it that way. Yeah. I mean, when it, you know, when it comes up in discussions or like if it's on Facebook groups or whatever, um, I'm usually like, I'll, I'll put in my two cents and I'll educate, you know, I mean, I understand why, why people would think what they think, but you know, I mean, I feel, I feel like it's like mathematically demonstrable that a lot of what's called ska now has no ska whatsoever in it. <laughs> mathematically So it's like, demonst- you could, it is though. <laughs> it's like, these are the ingredients that, are, you know, this is what, this is what ska is, right? And then, okay, so now you have these like blended forms of it. And then here you've got no ska whatsoever. So it's like 100% all natural ska. Ska may contain traces of punk rock made on equipment that processes rockabilly. (laughs) And then, you know what I mean? And then like at the end, it's like, Ska contains no ska. It's like imitation crab meat. It's like, it's like, um, not even because that looks like crab meat. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, it's just like, it's like hot dogs in a hamburger box. Some of those kids wear suits, Jeff. So some of them look like ska bands. It's like if you bought a heart shaped box full of chocolates for your girl and you brought it home and she opens it up and there's Sour Patch Kids inside that thing. Or boy. Yeah, whatever. Boy, <laughs> girl, whatever. Man, woman, whatever it is. Well, what l- I'm saying. Let me ask you this, though, Jeff, because playing the devil's advocate here, um, some of those folks might say that the what you just described is what they would term gatekeeping, meaning why do you get to it's decide? It's not gatekeeping. It's education. Okay. <laughs> It's like, why, why is that ska? Okay, give me your thesis. You don't have a freaking, you don't have a freaking leg to stand on. And if, 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 if like, if telling me that a bratwurst is a hamburger and I'm telling you that, no, a hamburger is this, that makes me a gatekeeper, then maybe somebody needs to build that freaking wall and lock that gate. I don't know. But it's like, <laughs> build yeah, the wall. That's not a, Jeff that's Baker, not, 2022. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Listen, uh, I got into this uh, uh, groove here of, of now, finding. Wait, wait, because I, 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 this is, this question is is related. You know, I read in an interview you did with, and I was impressed. You you were interviewed by the noted music writer J D Considine in 1997. So during the height of of stubborn all stars, uh, you you said to him that your goal at the time was to save American ska fans from musical mediocrity. Uh, I said that yes. Um, how do you In think what year? 1997, this was when J.D. Considine was a reporter at the Baltimore Sun. Um, Stubborn All-Stars were playing a show in Baltimore. So he did a story and interviewed you. And I thought that was a great quote that you were, your goal was to save American ska fans from musical mediocrity. Um, I guess Damn, I, I must've been high. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty grandiose and also like still seems like, like you knew who you were. In 1997, for sure, because that's Brooklyn, still who you I are. I thought who I was. <laughs> so, so related to what we were talking about, how do you think you've done in terms of of saving American ska from musical mediocrity? Uh, most miserable failure, I guess. 
Look, I'm sorry I let you down, Jeff. I just had to express myself, and I'm not very good at that. So I made mediocre <laughs> ska. Are you, like, speaking, like, as the voice of American ska? Or no, I'm literally speaking, speaking for myself. Yeah. Okay, because the other way was more understandable. Well, I, I can't – I won't speak for everybody else. No, but the thing is, look. Okay, and I had to say this every time. Just because I don't think it's ska, because it isn't, <laughs> doesn't mean that it's bad. Right. Some of it's really good, mm-hmm. but it isn't ska, and it doesn't have any elements of ska. Well, what, what would Zero. you, what would you so, call it? I don't know. That's not my problem. That's their problem. Right. right. They need to figure out why the hell they think they're playing ska when they're not. None. Not any. They're yeah. playing like... To tell you the truth, musicologically, it's closer to punk polka. True. If you break down what they're actually well, playing. I mean, it depends on what, what band you're talking about. You it can't does, just generalize. Overarchingly, mm. it's like if they think they're playing ska and they're not, it usually kind of comes out to some form of punk polka because of what the instrument's roles are. Because of what the instruments are playing, it's more closely related to Northern European dance music. Yes. Unless it's a band that's like heavily influenced by Streetlight Manifesto or just Streetlight Manifesto, in which case Wait, it's isn't not- that Eastern European pop, 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 pop punk polka? I was well, I was gonna just say like Eastern European folk punk, but yeah. Like, there, there's negligible difference between Streetlight Manifesto and... Gogo Bordello? Go, yeah, Gogo Bordello. Like, other than Gogo Bordello has heard Jamaican music, Gogo clearly. Bordello is more, <laughs> um, like, gypsy-inflected, though. It uses more, you know, well, yes. it uses and more it, it gypsy has more... type of scales and theory. Right. right, which is you so, know, it's it's a little more eastern than streetlight. Yes, True. it is. Further but, east, far east. Oh, there's the connection. But but Gogo Bordello's bassist also has a dub record, like a solo album that's just uh-huh. like a dub record. Like they they also like are real like steeped in dub reggae in Gogo uh-huh. Bordello, which is like way more Jamaican influence than streetlight can ever claim. That's okay. all. That's all. Okay. Now, I went to see Streetlight Manifesto for the first time uh, at the end of last year, I guess. Was it Mm -hmm. the end of last year or was it this year? Who knows? I can't remember if it was January, December, whatever, but it was recently. And it was freaking amazing. When their first record came out, 2003, I listened to that shit nonstop. Like, I have... I, well, the I, crowd was going completely insane. Yeah, man. Like I, he didn't have to sing any of the songs. No, everybody was singing it for him. The band was the band was crying that they were sloppy, but they were tight. <laughs> yeah, everybody of they was were tight. real good. They're one you of the tightest I mean? bands. Yeah, everybody like, was real good, and I couldn't. I didn't want to say anything bad. I couldn't. There wasn't anything bad to say. The last time I saw Streetlight Manifesto was a few years back. Uh, Mephiscopheles was opening for them in Detroit. And, like, I went because, like, I love Mephiscopheles unabashedly. Love that band. 
Uh, but like, obviously I'm going to stick around and watch Streetlight. And it was a tour where they were playing their first record in its entirety, uh, followed by like whatever other songs. And it blew me away that like, I stopped listening to Streetlight Manifesto a very long time ago. Not like deliberately. It's just like my tastes changed. Uh, but them playing that album front to back, I still knew like 80, 90% of the words <laughs> having not heard it in a decade. Uh, like I care very much about Streetlight Manifesto. I like, even if I don't listen to them, they, they were a very big part of my musical tastes for quite a while and they don't play ska, <laughs> but I love them. <laughs> right. But, but no my problem with that, but no problem with that either. Matt, but my question would be, why do so many of their fans think they do play ska? Because people were raised, well, a lot of people, like myself included, like when I came into ska in like the mid to late 90s, I didn't know what ska was. And I still feel like people just don't know what ska is because the label is applied to things consistently that aren't ska. Um, all right, Jeff, another, no. another, another pointed question for you. Uh, Dang, this is, this is hard. This is worse than Joe Biden question. I, <laughs> I got you on the stand here. So, and this is something obviously, you know, that happens to us all as we age, but as a musician in your fifties, how do you stay connected to oh a younger? God. How old are you, Jeff? You told me. You were I'm older than Jeff. So don't worry, Jeff. Um, oh you are? God, Mark, how old are you? I'm old enough. Um, You're not older than me. I am. Um, I know, I know how old you are, and I'm older than you. Um, so, Jeff, like like six days. No, I'm I'm at least two years older than you, Jeff. Really? Yeah. Um, no way. As a musician in your fifties, how do you stay connected to a younger audience that that does seem drawn to the sounds of ska punk and have a tenuous connection or awareness of the roots of ska music? Like, what do you do? I got I got no idea, man. I just I got no idea. I'm not, do you I'm even not good think about stuff. that? I feel like no. I just I feel like you just do you. Yeah, like, I just as long as I've I known you, that's done been your in, MO. I haven't even done anything in a minute. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, we're doing. You, you've got this compilation, but yeah, I've been know. doing other stuff. Like no, no, for a few years, more but, than a few. Years. But I, I even feel with this compilation, your your um you know, on the anniversary, 30 year anniversary of it, you know, you're bringing your music back out there. And so to me, that's, you know, you have an opportunity here to, to sort of establish again, what, what, you know, and I'm old, I'm, you know, old man yelling at clouds here, but, um, Hey, you kids <laughs> get off of my sky. Right. I fully, I fully <laughs> embrace that. I am fully self-aware enough to, to admit that, but, but, I'm I'm glad that you you're putting your music back out there so that it can connect to a younger audience. I you know, and I'm a historian. I take this shit pretty seriously, and I think it's important for people to know the past and to understand the history of the music. Because when when kids think that ska started with um, uh, Streetlight Manifesto or um, Less Than Jake, that hurts my heart a little bit, you know. So mm. that's why I'm glad you did this. But I was sort of curious, you know. Do you even think about that? It sounds like, you know, you, you can't, I guess, you know, it sort of drives yourself crazy. Yeah, I guess I just don't. I mean, I just do what I do. And like Matt came up with this genius idea, which I didn't even realize how great it was until we were like heavily into it, you know, <laughs> before I was like Matt. And, and it keeps getting better, by the way. But I couldn't have thought, I couldn't have thought this up. 
because like, I don't know. I just, I would never think of something like that. I just, I just make music that I think is fun. The project was Matt's idea. I just started working on it and it was, it got more and more fun as it went. A lot of it because of talking to people and the crazy ideas people are having and, and, um, you know, I think part of this project too, like as far as what is ska, what isn't ska, what connects, what doesn't connect, like this project isn't genre specific or like anything like that. So, I mean, in, in that sense, we're trying to appeal to the entire planet. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. And I'm, I'm glad Matt that you had the foresight to sort of t- to do this because, um, it's important Me for, too. for the music to to have a second life. And, and well, I like think- you, you just called yourself a historian, and like I totally think that's accurate. For, I mean, obviously you're a musician and all this as well, author. But like historian seems to fit like your interaction with this music. And I was just thinking, like, I don't think I'm a historian, but like I might be an anthropologist of ska, uh, and like. Uh, yeah, like this is just one of those things where it's like, man, I this it's it's time. Like we we need to celebrate the collection of music that was put out here because it's still like vitally important. And I feel like there's a lot of people who don't know how important this was to a lot of the people that they know. So like the fact that we get to have Big D and the Kids Table and some of these other bands kind of show love is really exciting to as like a I don't know, a person that cares about protecting and preserving like the legacy of ska, like to see a, a pretty big ska punk band pay homage to the label and to Chris Murray of like all songwriters, you know, it's, it's cool for me. And like, it's important for me to like present this because I think that the stubborn label is a, it's like a very particularly, it's like a, I think it's the most American Jamaican hybrid thing we have. The most Jamaican thing American has America has as far as like ska reggae music, uh, just in like with the, the version city studio and the way that like the collection of bands, it's not all Jamaican music, even there's punk music, whatever, but like, it feels like Jeff was doing, Jamaica in New York with American music. And I think that's really exciting. And I think it's exciting to see the whole world celebrate that. Yeah. And, and I, I think that's well said, Matt. I I think it's important to note, you know, that, that stubborn, stubborn all-stars, the slackers, Skinner box all sort of come from New York. And that's, um, you know, as someone who's from New York, um, I've always been sort of proud of that, that, that when we do think of classic American ska and reggae music, those are the bands that, that come to mind. So yeah, uh, I'm glad that you are, are documenting all this. Um, finally, Jeff, one last question for you. What would the Jeff Baker of 2022 tell the Jeff Baker of 1992? I would have told myself like, yo, you're so fucking lucky to be around some of these older treasures, musical treasures. Um, take, take more time to, to try to, be around them more, spend more time with them, pursue them. And uh, 
I, I regret not spending more time with these guys when they were around. Um, that's one of the main things I think about when I think about like regrets of, of, of the past and stuff. And then like, I don't know if it's something I could change, but I, I was never that like, um, I wouldn't say antisocial, but, but I, w- I wouldn't say I was antisocial, but I was never like the best schmoozer. You know, could probably worked on that. <laughs> and, uh, uh, cause like I, ha- I know I have a reputation for just saying whatever the fuck is on my mind, whether, whether anybody likes it or not. No. And, uh, yeah, you know, and, uh, and, uh, and also I would say, I would say be harder, but be nicer. Yep. That sounds like your fifties talking there, Jeff, but I, I get it. Um, <laughs> Both at the same time. Yes. And before we go, Matt, where can people pick up the Still Stubborn compilation volume number one? Man, you just got to go to stubbornrecords.bandcamp.com. It's right there on the top. And volume two will be coming out pretty soon. And can you tease any of the bands that are on that or is that still top secret on volume two? Can I tell tell them one band, Jeff? Uh, all right. You could tell him one. Okay, because okay, I I just want to tell you that that cat bite is on on volume two, and it's so good. Wow, you heard it here. Cat bites on volume two, so that should maybe Jeff. That comes. That's a great answer to my question. How do you stay connected oh. to a younger audience? I think oh. Matt might have helped you solve that one right there. Matt, Jeff, I want to thank you very much. For taking time to speak with me. This was great. And again, congratulations on this. Volume one is great. Uh, I look forward to everything else that that comes out. And Jeff, you know, congratulations to you. 30 years is really something to celebrate. And um, I'm glad that you're getting the validation you deserve from all of these different artists um, to, to, uh, to show you how much you've meant, you know, that you're, you're also a treasure of the American ska scene. So, so thanks. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the ska boom interviews on the Pantheon podcast network. My book is available. Ska boom is available from DeWolf publishing. That's D I W U L F.com as well as on Amazon. Thanks for listening and take care.